X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Thursday, June 4th. Today, back in the day, 1989, the June 4th incident, also known as Lucie Chijan, also known as the Tiananmen Square Massacre. Protests began on April 15th, were forcibly suppressed on June 4th, when the government declared martial law, sent the military to occupy central parts of Beijing. Troops with assault rifles and tanks fired at demonstrators and those trying to block the military's advance into Tiananmen Square. Estimates of the death toll range from the several hundred to the several thousand, with thousands more wounded. And now, information the Tiananmen Square massacre, or the June 4th incident, is censored in China, including very innovative internet search blocking on China sites. Protesting is American. Attacking protesters with the military is the kind of thing we criticize other countries for. Also today, back in the day, June 4th, 1919, Congress passed the 19th Amendment and sent it to the states for ratification. What does the 19th Amendment do, passed in 1919? The 19th Amendment to the United States Constitution prohibits the states and the federal government from denying the right to vote to citizens of the United States on the basis of sex. As you've seen in signs from grainy black and white photos is votes for women. It was only 101 years ago. And if 101 years ago seems like a long time, just think that your grandparents almost certainly knew people who never knew voting equality. At The Local, we aim to give you the news and to inspire engagement in democracy. Today, we have two people who found their mission early in their lives and are working on making an impact. And Winsby Campos stops in, candidate for House District 28, taking over for Jeff Barker, who's retiring. Winsby would be the youngest legislator in Salem next year. And an interview with Cameron Witten, recent candidate for Metro District 5. Cameron has launched the Black Resilience Fund, providing mutual aid to black Portlanders. First up, this is today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Commissioner Chloe Udaly spoke out on police tactics, called the use of tear gas sadistic, and I'm quoting, and urged police to stop using it. It was during Wednesday's city council meeting, and here's the quote from Chloe Udaly. The Geneva Convention banned the use of tear gas. I think we should, too. I'm absolutely horrified by what I saw last night. It is sadistic to be using tear gas in the middle of a public health crisis. It's attacking people's respiratory symptoms. Commissioner Joanne Hardesty agreed with Chloe Udaly, calling the use of tear gas and flashbang grenades, and again I'm quoting, completely unacceptable. Mayor Wheeler did not comment on the tactics, nor did his office. But his rival for the mayor's office was vehement in a response to the police use of force. Mayoral candidate Sarah Anarone is calling on Mayor Wheeler to take immediate action on police reform. In a press release, she called on the mayor, who is also the police commissioner, to immediately institute the following reforms, banning chokeholds, carotid restrictions, and the knee-to-neck maneuver, which killed George Floyd, also to ban the use of chemical weapons at demonstrations, that means tear gas generally, and to defund militarization of Portland police and required de-escalation training and tactics. The release goes on to say, and again I am quoting, as with police bureaus across the country, the culture of the Portland Police Bureau needs to be changed. Commissioner Joanne Hardesty has received some criticism from activists for urging the citywide curfew. During Wednesday's city council discussion, Commissioner Hardesty reintroduced, though, a budget proposal to defund police on school campuses, to defund transit police, and to defund the gun violence reduction team. It's not yet clear if that proposal is intended to move funds from police to other services or just within the police bureau. And lest we forget, we're still in the middle of a global pandemic. The Oregon Health Authority reported 64 new cases. The state's total is just under 4,400. There have been two new deaths. There are now 159 confirmed deaths. The highest rate of the new cases is right around Salem. Their rate of new cases is 3.1 percent, compared to 1.6 percent in Portland and 1.4 percent statewide. 
And if you take out Portland and Salem, it's 0.9% for the rest of the state. Worldwide, over 2.7 million people have recovered from the coronavirus. We often focus on the death toll. Let's take a moment to honor those who have recovered. The governor held a press conference on Wednesday to discuss Phase 2 reopening. 33 Oregon counties are eligible to apply to move into Phase 2 and could start doing so as soon as Friday. That's tomorrow. By Tuesday, at least 26 counties had applied to move to Phase 2. In order to enter Phase 2, remember, the county has to have been in Phase 1 for at least 14 days, and the state wants to see that county case numbers over the last seven days are not above what they were over the previous seven. Under forthcoming Phase 2 guidelines, gatherings of up to 50 people may take place indoors, up from 25 people in Phase 1, and outdoor gatherings are allowed with up to 100 people. Restaurants and bars can extend their curfews from 10 p.m. up to midnight. Workers can begin a limited return to indoor workspaces, but work from home is still strongly recommended. Youth sports will have guidance regarding equipment sharing, and low-contact sports like tennis or pickleball may return to play. Indoor activities such as bowling, pool, and arcades will receive specific guidance. Bowling, pool, and arcade, wait for your specific guidance. Multnomah County is the only county in Oregon to not already be in Phase 1. The county's application is expected to be delivered to the governor on Friday. More than 100 people have now been arrested in the nights of protesting in Portland. Most were released within hours of their arrest, with only about 25 resulting in any filing of court documents. A review by Pamplin Media of the available court records shows that the county prosecutors are focusing efforts on those accused of violence, setting fires or theft. A report from the Portland Tribune found that probable cause affidavits have only been submitted in five cases, though one affidavit lists four defendants. Affidavits are an indicator that district attorneys are seriously pursuing the case. So 100 arrests, but not yet indication of any more than like a dozen active cases. It's common for criminal cases in Multnomah County to never reach the affidavit stage. Prosecutors can drop the charges, a plea deal can get reached, and the case can get handled by social services, or the defendant could waive their right to immediate filing. Records in juvenile cases are automatically sealed by a judge. There might be more that we don't know about. Most people who are booked at the downtown jail are released soon after. The county jail system's 1,192 beds are usually always at capacity, although that's been different during the coronavirus time. Among local businesses who've reported damage or theft include Portland Luggage, Barista Coffee Shop, Killer Burger, Mary's Jewelry, Jewelry and Loan Company, Artistic Portland, America's Best Contacts and Eyeglasses, no word about the second best contacts and eyeglasses, Bangkok Ballast, U.S. Outdoor, no word about U.S. Indoor, Packhouse Jewelers, Foot Traffic, Sounds a Little Oxymoronic, and a dispensary, a convenience store, a liquor store, and some others. The protests have been largely peaceful over the last several nights, with officers and protesters drawing distinctions between the peaceful protesters and those trying to instigate violence or property damage. And according to a tweet from the Portland Mercury, there was no line at Voodoo Donuts. And here's some guidance to share for protesters. A reminder that COVID-19 is still real, hasn't gone away. If you've protested and you worry about exposure to the virus, OHSU is offering drive through testing at the Gordon Faber Recreation Center in Hillsboro and at the Expo Center in Portland for people with COVID-19 symptoms. That can include fever, cough, shortness of breath, chills, muscle pain, the new loss of taste or smell, vomiting or diarrhea, and or sore throat. No appointment or provider referral is necessary. These criteria are expected to change in accordance with the CDC guidelines, the availability of testing supplies. OHSU mobile testing locations are at these places. Hillsborough Stadium, that's 4450 Northeast Century Boulevard in Hillsborough. The hours are Monday to Saturday, noon to 6. And the Portland Expo Center, that's 2060 North Marine Drive in Portland. The hours again, Monday to Saturday, noon to 6. 
You can also visit your local urgent care facility for services as well. And according to protest organizers, it is not recommended to tell health care providers you were at a protest if you need any care of any kind. Many insurance plans apparently can deny coverage for participation in, quote, civil unrest or riots, end quote. Oregonians who need help with unemployment have a new number to call. If you filed for benefits through the Pandemic Unemployment Assistance Program, here is your new number to call with questions. 503-370-5400. 503-370-5400. Until now, there's been essentially no phone support for the new program, which extends unemployment benefits to independent contractors, gig workers, and the self-employed for the first time. 461,000 Oregonians have now filed for unemployment since the pandemic began. The Unemployment Department website reports that 93% of those claims have been processed. But according to testimony before the state legislature, just before the director of the department was fired, they said that between 200 and 225,000 Oregonians had applied for benefits and not received them. The department began Project Focus 100. That's the PR name for let's try to get this thing done. They started on May 29th. They saw a 230% increase in phone calls answered to the unemployment office in the following two days. If you're going through this and you want to share your experience, either with your voice, send us a voice file. Otherwise, you can send us written words at the local at xray.fm. Not only has it been terrific weather for protesting, it is also wonderful weather at the beach. Many Pacific Coast towns in Oregon and Washington have started reopening to visitors. A soft reopening began in mid-May when the major tourist destinations of Ocean Shores, Washington, and Newport, Oregon, gave hotel operators and vacation rentals permission to reopen with conditions. Seaside and Cannon Beach took similar steps on May 26, and on Monday, lodgings in Lincoln City had the green light to reopen. Lincoln County, Oregon, along with Pacific County, Washington, require a 24-hour hold after a guest checks out. That's before housekeeping staff can re-enter the room and then re-rent it. Most hotels are keeping occupancy at 50%, but plans to go to 100% capacity in most places are due to take effect June 26th. And Oregon State campgrounds of the coast are set to reopen June 9th. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Here's Emily Gilliland with What's Next. First up, Winsvay Campos, candidate for House District 28, talks with Jefferson Smith about the moment she knew she needed to run for office, lessons learned from the campaign trail, and the next phase of her campaign leading to the general election. House District 28 has been served by Representative Jeff Barker for about 18 years. Now, covering Washington County, including Aloha, that district is going to have a new representative. The Democratic nominee for that district is Winsby Campos. She won the Democratic primary, will be up against Daniel Martin in the general election. Winsby's political organizer serves on the board of Next Up as a family advocate for Family Promise of Beaverton. Winsby, hello, and thanks for being with us. Hi, good morning. Now, Jeff Barker. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here, and good morning to you. Now, Jeff Barker was a retired police officer who's one of the older members of the House, one of the more conservative Democrats in the legislature. Does that describe you? Uh, Definitely not. Um, So I, if elected to the House, uh, will be the youngest woman uh, to to have served in the legislature and will be the youngest person in in the legislature as of right now. Um, Currently, we don't have anybody under 30 years old. Um, I'm still, I'm I'm approaching my mid-20s. I'm approaching um, my mid-20s. That's an excellent, I like how everybody describes their own age, approaching the mid-20s. I think that, (laughs) I would think approaching the mid-20s means 23, because if you're 24, you just say mid-20s. Is that that a good guess? (laughs) 
I'm, I'm 24, so... Oh, there you go. You're mid-20s. That's fair. You have approached. <laughs> Otherwise, mid-20s. If mid-20s is... If, if, if 24 is it, then mid-20s is only 25. And and if it's mid, I think you got... The 24 to 26 is mid-20s. I think you're, sta- <laughs> you're safe in there, Winsby. So I'm, I'm, I'm in my mid-20s. Um, I'm also pretty progressive. Um, so... Uh, Representative Barker, you know, I, I respect a lot of the work that he did during his time in the legislature and, I mean, has been a champion for some fantastic uh, issues like uh, reproductive justice. Um, but we certainly um, we certainly fall on, on different sides of, of, or not different sides, but I'm certainly more progressive on, on a number of different issues. Um, and I think that comes a lot from the different backgrounds uh, that we come from and also uh, our different the work that we've done before we go further let me ask you the question I asked just about every candidate who are you and why are you running <laughs> so my name is Wednesday Campos I work as the case manager for family promises Beaverton it's a transitional housing program that helps families experiencing houselessness get into housing and it's really the work that I do that was the catalyst for me making this decision to run. I had a day at work where I had one too many conversations with the families that I work with uh, about the lack of resources and solutions in the area. I had a day where I started out the morning on the phone with somebody who by the end of the phone call knew that they were going to be sleeping outside that night. And I ended that work day with a mom breaking down in tears in front of me asking me, how she was supposed to put a roof over her children's head when she works 40 hours a week but only makes minimum wage. And unfortunately, out here in Washington County, uh, making minimum wage doesn't makes it very difficult to afford everything, all of, all of the costs of living. And so I sat at my desk feeling really angry and frustrated, and I thought to myself, what we need is change at a policy level. We need people that are on the front lines of the most pressing issues, but we also need people who bring diverse lived experiences and perspectives. And as somebody who grew up in a low-income household, uh, myself having exper- experienced housing insecurity, living in a motel from the age of eight until I left for college, and really seeing a lot early in life and seeing how systems aren't set up to help families like mine succeed uh, really instilled a sense of justice in me pretty early on. And these, these are some of the different perspectives that I hope to bring to the legislature. And now, as the Democratic nominee in a district that is leaning strongly blue, it, it's premature to say you're, you're a member of the legislature, but you've got to be starting to spend some of your time thinking about the next legislative session. You seem like in a pretty good position, pretty likely to be end up serving in the legislature. What are some of the early priorities that you want to take on? Yes, absolutely. So we're thankful to be in this position where we have, it's feeling like we have a number of months to do some things like help other campaigns in the area, uh, but also focus on, on what policies and what what, our pri- what my priorities are going to be going in um, and being able to connect with voters and really engage with them. And some of my priorities going in are certainly housing. Uh, I have a number of different uh, ways that I've talked about it as an issue, one of which I think is really important right now, uh, just, just thinking about what's going on 
uh, in the area, um, and that's decriminalizing homelessness, um, but also taking a look at no-cause evictions and how the, the minimum wage hasn't matched the rising cost of living, because when you look at housing as an issue, it's so in- interconnected with, with a bunch of other issues. Um, and so my priorities, the things that I have campaigned on this far are housing, education, healthcare, uh, and climate change. Um, the top three that I've talked about a lot are healthcare, housing, climate change. And I come at these issues um, in from having lived experience myself, but also now. So when I talk about them, they're not abstract problems, but they're also things that I'm helping folks navigate in the work that I do. Um, but I think one of the big priorities going into this next legislative session is is how we're coming back from COVID-19. And I've received a lot of questions of, you know, how how do we recover? Uh, what are what are the steps after the fact? Uh, which is a is an important question. But I also wish we were we weren't framing it so much in a how are we recovering afterwards, but you know how are we pushing our elected leaders right now to to take care of some of these issues. I heard you talking uh, before we started uh, about how, you know, half of the people who've applied for unemployment are currently receiving it. Um, I think one of the big things will be in in focusing on how we're prioritizing people um, when we're talking about uh, where funding is going to go, where revenue streams um, continue, um, making sure that we're focusing on people and, and not profits. I want to dwell on what you just said about the employment department. And now with a state that is being run by Democrats, okay, uh, one of the challenges Democrats can face is feeling comfortable holding state government accountable, right? is making sure that, for instance, if there are systems that need to be transformed, if there are public workers that, uh, that need to go through some sort of shift in how business is done, if we need to change some systems that would make might make some elected official who's an ally or a friend look bad or make some organization, a, a union or an association who is an ally might might disrupt what they are, uh, what they are used to. How do you think about grappling with that? How do you imagine girding yourself so that you can be, if you know, the state legislature is the board of directors for the state, how can you imagine serving that fiduciary duty to the state sometimes in the face of would be allies? So I think at the end of the day, um, it's, it's making sure that we're, that, that folks in in leadership positions are advocating for the people that that they're supposed to be serving. Um, and yes, relationships are important, and of course they need to be built and fostered when when you're in these different um, agencies and and elected leadership positions. And you know, um, you've got to serve the party, and and all of this is is what we're told. Um, but but if you're not advocating for for those um, you know that are that you that you claim to serve um then then it you know it doesn't really seem like you're doing your job at that point and so i think you know being willing to stand up in especially in difficult moments is something we should expect of of our leaders and you know myself uh i there have been times when uh in volunteer work so i've i've for about five years volunteered for the Democratic Party of Washington County 
And there were moments that as much as I respected leadership uh, and, and you know, found that there were a number of friends um, in, in the executive board and the elected officers, uh, there were still moments that I didn't agree with what was going on. And I took moments to speak out against that because, you know, it's not just party loyalty. Uh, it's, it's being there for, for the people. I just want to say thank you again, Winsby Campos, for joining us. Where can people find out more? People can find out more at uh, CamposForOregon.com and uh, or, uh, you know, quick Google search. Um, I'm the only one that will come up with my name. Um, <laughs> So, so yeah, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't ask about it. Uh, I didn't ask about it, but I, you know, the spell, you know, in case people try to find it, it's W L N S V E Y. Did I get it right? And people might be yeah. curious about the origin. They don't need to know about the origin, but they might be curious. Yeah. Um, just really quickly. Uh, my dad made it up. Um, he wanted his Sweet. children to have original names. And so there it is. Good. I, I, my dad named me Jefferson. It's not exactly original, but I didn't know a lot of other people named Jefferson. So I, I, I have some kinship. Winsby, thank you so much for spending the time, and good luck to you out there. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Be well. An interview with Cameron Witten. After losing a close Metro primary race, Cameron has launched a mutual aid fund called the Black Resilience Fund. In just four days, the fund has grown to over $200,000, creating change individually, collectively, from the inside and out. Cameron and I discuss how to make change and opportunities. Hello, Cameron. Good morning, Emily. Thank you so much for having me on today. Well, I I am excited to hear about your newest project. What have you been up to since the primary election ended? Well, not sleeping, if you are wondering. (laughs) (laughs) You didn't take a nap? You didn't rest? Uh, you know, maybe for a couple of minutes or so. Yeah. Uh, you know, my habitual problem is you give me a day or two to relax, and that gives me a day or two to figure out 10 different projects. Uh, if Jefferson's listening, uh, I actually reached out to him about a different project that I launched uh, right before the Black Resilience Fund. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, I've been committed for uh, a decade now in Portland to finding solutions to problems that so many of our Portlanders want to be involved in uh, Mm -hmm. providing solutions for we just need to figure out how to organize and so uh, I am grateful to have this opportunity to continue to identify ways for us to push past despair to organize take action to make a difference for Portlanders that are our neighbors that are in our community that's wonderful so tell us what is the black resilience fund Yeah, so the Black Resilience Fund is a new initiative, it's a baby initiative. It is a fresh uh, breath of fresh air for black Portlanders. We are collectively, all of us, witnessing a long and painful month that is an extension of a year that has challenged all of us to our core. And knowing that this is a time of deep pain and trauma for black people. Mm. We wanted to make sure that folks had opportunity to continue to improve their lives, to have healing, to have resilience. And it's hard to focus on healing when you know that the bill collector is on speed dial. Mm. And so we wanted to eliminate that barrier for black Portlanders 
to empower them to focus on their lives, to focus on healing. And so uh, Sunday morning, I went onto my personal Facebook page and I said, friends, I just want to start this fund, you know, for my black folks that I know, you know, if you need a warm meal, if you need a bill paid, if you need groceries, please just contact me. I'm going to collect some donations by Venmo. I'm going to send some stuff out. And I ended up that entire day seated at my kitchen table. I could not leave for the entire day. We raised $11,000 in one day just off of Venmo, PayPal, and cash. So wow. we decided to start a GoFundMe to make it easier. Uh, it was hard for me sending my links out to people and trying to figure out people's handles and what they needed. And we made a GoFundMe. And our goal was to raise $15,000 by uh, Tuesday, by yesterday. Mm. And as we speak, uh, we breached $150,000. So 10 times uh, our original goal for that GoFundMe, we have now reached. Uh, we have supported over a hundred black Portlanders already. The hardest thing for us to actually make this fun work is actually that the apps that we're trying to use, Square, Venmo, they've actually blocked me. Uh, I've already hit the, the daily spending limits. And so I now know the system is truly rigged against black, getting black people money. And so we're trying to find new ways to get checks printed, to use PayPal and other means to get folks these dollars. Uh, we have over 300 requests that we're currently processing, and uh, it is the generosity of Portlanders helping to make this dream come true for so many. That's fantastic. And I'm looking at your GoFundMe. I mean, I looked at it yesterday, and it feels like it's just exponentially growing every moment. What is there? Uh, are you getting large donations, small donations? How is this all coming together? So, Emily, like, I, you know, I it is happening so fast that uh, my the least of my worries is watching the growth of the fund. <laughs> you know, yeah, uh, yeah. we are encouraging folks to give deeply, to talk to their friends who we know we have money. Uh, this fund is a fund that has a political message. We know that there is true wealth disparity, and we know that that disparity feels injustice. And we see this fund as an opportunity to make a, a big impact in uh, closing the inequity gap. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I'm encouraging folks to give deeply, but our focus right now is to get the funds that we do have into the hands of black Portlanders. Mm -hmm. And so we are focused on telling people the need. We know that the need is big. We have set an artificial cap of $600 per person, okay. and we have had people with a lifetime of debt come to us asking for help. So we know that there's more that we can do. And so our focus is on filling that need. And I, I believe that folks see our track record in the community, see the work that we've done. They're helping to, to pitch in. They're telling their friends to pitch in. We have businesses that are doing, you know, donating profits from all their sales to the, the Black Resilience Fund. Mm -hmm. We know that what we currently have, $150,000, if you divide that by 600 people, that would serve 200 Black Portlanders. We know we can do so much better, Portland. We know the need is so much higher. Uh, I encourage people who are listening to close their eyes for just one moment and to imagine that we go through the month of June, one whole month, where every single Black Portlander does not have to worry about their finances. I want that dream to be possible. I know it is possible. And that's exactly what the Black Resilience Fund is dedicated to doing. Mm. 
Cameron, you're someone who has expressed their voice and values in various ways, everything from civil disobedience to protest to running nonprofits to running for office, creating change from the inside and the outside. Where have you found your work to be most compelling with regard to creating change in this community or another community? That is such an important question. Emily, and I will say that my heart is with the people. We have institutions that were created that have never been intended to make space for every person. Mm. And so even with my uh, attempts to work the inside game, it's always been to ensure that the people have a voice. And so I believe firmly that whether you're working outside the system or inside the system, we need to ensure that our actions are benefiting as many people as possible and as many people have a seat at the table as we can. And so uh, it's, it's not a simple answer. You know, I think how do we find opportunities to plant seeds of empowerment on the outside? Uh, and then also how do we find ways to tear down the walls, tear down the gates on the inside? Uh, I have found ways to do both. And I, in, the, in, in my opinion, I really like finding that place in the middle where you can do both the you know, growing and the empower, empowering on the outside and be using that at the same time that you're breaking down those walls. Cameron, how can people support you and your work? Thank you, Emily. Uh, please find us on social media. Uh, my tags are my name, Cameron Witten. Uh, we're currently working on making a website for the Black Resilience Fund. Mm -hmm. We'll also make a Facebook, Twitter, Instagram for the Black Resilience Fund. Uh, I also am the founder of racial justice nonprofit, Brown Hope. So please find Brown Hope on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Um, uh, we uh, need volunteers. We, we need folks to donate and to share the links for the Black Resilience Fund. We are truly uh, allowing Black Portlanders to have a breath of fresh air. And during the era of I Can't Breathe, it's such a powerful statement to hear from Black Portlanders saying that you all gave me an opportunity for healing, an opportunity for me to feel happiness in a time where I did not expect that I would feel that. And so uh, please reach out. Uh, we just have only began this campaign for the Resilience Fund. We can do so much more. Cameron, thank you so much for being with us this morning and sharing your vision and such ho hopeful stories. Thank you, Emily. Have a good Take day. Care. Thanks to Winsby and Cameron for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Tomorrow we'll be back with an interview with Senator Lou Frederick about his 10 years in the Oregon State Senate working on police reform. We'll also have a report from Alex Zielinski, news editor of the Portland Mercury. She will share her first-hand accounts of this week's protests. She's been covering them all week. We will talk at a safe distance. Talk to you then. And if you have story ideas or groups who need shouts out, send us an email at thelocal at xray.fm. We're staying together while we're apart. And thank you, democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.